Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 68 of X-Lapsed, uh, and it's Excalibur Day. And uh, one of the things I've said a few times during our last couple of outings with this book is uh, something along the lines of, boy, it's nice to not have to deal with Otherworld. To which I say, yeah, it was. <laughs> We're back in Otherworld today. It's Excalibur, volume four, number nine. And this had a May 2020 cover date. The story's called Verse 9, Schools of Magic, written by Teeny Howard with art by Marcus Toe. Colors, Eric Arshinaga, letters, VCs, Corey Petit, designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, B. So White Sabolski. This had a cover price of $3.99 and went on sale March 18th of 2020. So we open, and it's the ceremony of the Warwolf Skulls, I guess we can call it for... Lack of a better term. Um, now, I'm not sure if it was made clear prior to this, but the whole point of this entire endeavor was to use the Warwolf Skulls as something of a beacon of sorts uh, in order to guide our team to the secret location of the Starlight Citadel in Otherworld, where Majestrix Opalunar... Op- <laughs> easy for me to say. Opal Luna Saturnine hangs out. Now, you see, the Citadel used to serve as like a headquarters or a meeting place for the Captain Britain Corps, which isn't really a thing anymore. Now, I'm not 100% sure why this is such a pressing thing. Maybe maybe A just wants to plant a gateway seed there. It'll make a bit more sense as we work our way through it. Uh, but, I mean, suffice it to say, I've been completely open with you all here. Otherworld makes me glaze over, even in the best of times. So, this could be obvious. They could have said this, they could have written this in plain English, and I just missed it. Maybe it was one on one of the horrendously wordy info pages that this book usually carries, including today. So, as the ceremony commences, he flashes back to sending his four horsemen out way back in the long ago during that whole splitting of Krakoa and Arako thing that we saw during Hoxpox, uh, which I'm, I'm guessing we're going to probably see more of pretty soon. He then tells Gambit that he needs Excalibur to do something for the good of the people. From here, it's an info page, and it's all about the Starlight Citadel. There are a lot of words on this page, and very, very few of them are interesting. Um, we find out, or at least, you know, a lot of us knew this, but Merlin and his daughter Roma once lived there. Uh, of course, the Captain Britain Corps once met there, and now Saturnine is there, acting as an otherworldly guardian. I feel like I'm supposed to be, like, a whole lot more interested in this like i'm sorry if i'm coming across as dismissive this is just uh it's gonna take a whole lot of doing to make me care about any of this um now 
if that takes a bit of the oomph out of my analysis for you, I completely understand and I apologize, but uh, it is what it is. Um, and also what is, is our two pages of credits followed by our roll call. Today we're going to be focusing on Gambit, Rogue, Richter, Jubilee, Shogo, Betsy Britton, Apocalypse, Betsy's beautiful blonde British brother Brian Braddock, Mariana Stern, Reuben Wilmot, uh, Megan Poussineau, Megan Braddock, we'll say, and Pete Wisdom. Now we hop back to comics, and uh, the Warwolf beacon is glowing outside the lighthouse. Inside, our team's enjoying a bit of downtime, and I enjoy this scene as well, because it's just nice seeing these people together, you know? Not having to worry about druids and magicians and crap like that. It's just them hanging out. I mean, we see Gambit brushing Rogue's hair. We have Jubilee trying to feed Shogo. Betsy's just kind of there, but she has a strange feeling overwhelm her, and uh, then she excuses herself to check, check something out outside. And outside... She sees her beautiful brother, Brian, having some dirt time, kind of like Richter did last issue. Like, literally, he's just there, knelt down, rubbing his hands in the soil. Betsy calls out to him, and he leaves. She stands around thinking about how Brian feels pretty incomplete right now before heading back inside and deciding that Excalibur ought to leave this place tonight. We shift scenes to the Citadel. A woman named Christabel has been called to fetch something out of the vault for her royal wineness. Oh, boy. Uh, and so she does. And she slips this little pouch into an otherworldly dumbwaiter or something. Just then, the enormous face of Apocalypse appears in the skies above. Then, all the bell towers in the Citadel begin to gong, and a great big mirror in Saturnine's room is sh- smashed and shattered. And I'm going to assume that she did the smashing, which, you know, I'm a pretty superstitious guy, so I fear she probably just doomed us all to seven years of bad other world stories. So, fingers crossed that's not the case. Another scene shift. Now we're in London. And we're at a meeting of the Coven Akaba, Ak- Ak- however you say that. You know, the Coven. Now this is being led by the world's, you know, most hardcore PTA mom, uh, Marianna Stern. And that bearded dude, Reuben, who we saw a few issues back, uh, sitting down with Betsy and Pete. Now, they're talking about the balance of power in Otherworld, uh, and how Morgana Le Fay has been taken down and replaced with that weirdo, Jamie Braddock. Also, how that weirdo, Jamie Braddock, has the backing of Apocalypse and Captain Betsy Britton. Stern then calls for a sacrifice to be made in the name of Lady Morgana. And as with any cult or coven, uh, a member quickly and happily volunteers to uh, be laid out on Dexter Morgan's table. Bada-bing, bada-boom, the poor LARPer is stabbed right through the heart. Now, one of the followers of the coven sees this and runs out of the room through a long hallway and then outside onto the street. When she unhoods, we see that it's Megan, and she was just there doing some spy work for Britain's most convenient man, Pete Wisdom. Now, she fills him in on everything that just went down, including the coven's plan to cause that weirdo, Jamie Braddock, to do something foolish. To which Pete's certain that it wasn't going to take him all that long in the first place, you know, even without a cabin interference. Jamie Braddock's a weird dude. He's going to mess something up. They talk a bit about Megan's husband, you know, Betsy's beautiful brother, Brian, and how poorly he's treating himself since returning from Otherworld. Megan mentions how she might try to talk to Xavier and the Quiet Council to see about getting them a spot on Krakoa, and since Brian ain't a mutant, I wonder how that might play out. 
Now, Megan also alludes to the fact that Pete and Betsy might be kind of an item or a thing right now, which, yeah, that's probably going to happen. Next up, it's Otherworld, uh, where our Excalibur have taken to the skies trying to follow the beacon to the secret citadel. They stop to camp out, and then we get a we actually get a cute couple of pages of actual character time here. This is this is fun stuff here. Uh, Rogue and Gambit are uh, well, they're amorous because uh, <laughs> I don't think there's anything on any world that can make them unhorny. Right? They're always going to want to do something. Uh, Betsy she hunted down a pair of bunnies for dinner, which makes Jubilee gag. Yeah, possibly gagging her with a spoon. Um, she, in a bit that actually makes me chuckle out loud here, Jubilee says that rather than eat the bunnies, she'll just have protein bars for dinner. And then Richter's like, hey, that sounds good, and he asks for one, and he finds out that uh, these aren't protein bars, they're just plain candy bars, which I, I thought that was pretty cute. Uh, it's not often that I chuckle or even smile when reading a comic book, but this one got me. This was cute. I liked it a lot. Now, sitting around the fire, Betsy lays out some of the reasons for this mission. Naturally, the Citadel was home to the Captain Britain Corps, uh, many of whom were Bryans of the multiverse, but the Corps is no more, and she'd like to know why. At that very moment, Opal Luna Saturnine has assembled her priestesses with orders to hunt down Excalibur. Then an info page, it's the Moonlit Diadem. Nope. Not reading that. Uh, I really meant it when I said that outside of Fallen Angels, Excalibur has some of the worst info pages of this line. And this is yet another example of that. It's just... It's way too pleased with itself, and it doesn't give us anything we could use. Um, back to the campout. Rogue and Betsy are having a bit of a heart-to-heart. We've seen them have these uh, from time to time, and they're always pretty cool. And we learn a little bit more about why this mission is so important to Betsy. Now, since the Citadel was a meeting place of the Captain's Britain, why then is it being kept hidden from her? Considering she is Captain Britain right now, why can't she go there? And I'll hand it to him. This is a really good question, and actually proper motivation to go seek the place out. I still think Otherworld is boring, but at least they have a reason to be here, other than Apocalypse said, you know, go clear the pool. Meanwhile, the priestesses are all zapped down to a nearby wooded area, where several of them uh, aim bows and arrows of light into the sky in preparation for an attack. As this is going on, Jubilee and Shogo, who, of course, if you recall, Shogo is a great big dragon in Otherworld, they're having themselves a bit of a night flight. When, bang, the priestesses let fly their arrows of light right into poor Shogo's wing, and he begins to go down. Now, Betsy... Seeing this go down, she attempts to calm the baby dragon uh, down from the ground, while Gambit, Rogue, and Richter try to prepare some space for him to land as softly, I guess, as possible. In the sky, Jubilee gets a good look at the priestesses, and so she launches herself off of Shogo's back and paths the ever-loving hell out of them with her fireworks powers. Saturnine sees this and considers it to be an act of war. She then reaches for that pouch that we saw Christabel deliver earlier in the issue, which I think contains an Excalibur-flavored Captain Britain core. I'm not sure exactly what we're supposed to be seeing here, but what we do see is Jubilee, Richter, Gambit, and Rogue all decked out in the Union Jack. And that's where we leave it. That is Excalibur number 9. Next episode, we'll be looking at X-Force number 9, but, uh... Let's see what we can squeeze out of this one to talk about. Um, 
I feel like we've hit a stretch of issues and, of course, episodes where we're getting stories that are just kind of fine, right? They're just there, they're fine, nothing to get excited about, but unfortunately, not a whole heck of a lot to talk about either. Um, It's more Otherworld, uh, which I want to make it clear here, this isn't an Excalibur problem. This isn't the Teeny Howard problem. This isn't even a Dawn of X problem. This is a Chris problem. This is a Chris Sheehan problem. I just don't care about Otherworld. I don't see myself coming around to a story in this setting. Hopefully I could be proven wrong. But like when I think about covens, priestesses, druids, dragon babies, not my thing. You know, really not my thing. I feel like if I wanted to read those kind of stories, those stories exist. You know, I could go read Conan. I could go read anything. Not what I'm looking for out of an X book. Again, that's nobody's problem but my own. And uh, it feels kind of like I'm, I'm copping out here. Uh, but I want to make it clear, I, I've revisited today's script three times, trying to think of a way to approach this little talking time section, right? Trying to think of things to actually talk about. But I, I really can't come up with a whole heck of a lot. Um, again, this was not a bad issue. This wasn't a bad issue. I, I enjoyed a lot of it. It's just sort of there, though, right? Um, out of the parts I did enjoy uh, were especially the parts where the team just got to hang out and talk. Unfortunately for you know my taste, there wasn't quite enough of that here for me. Especially when we consider that we came off the last two issues where so much of it had to do with how our characters interacted with one another. I wanted more like that. Um, the whole werewolf hunt at the... Uh, the Bloodstone Estate, it was fun. It was fun, and we got to see our characters just chill out and hang out and get a breather. Um, but here, you know, we're right back in Otherworld, and I know everything that we get here is necessary, right? I mean, this isn't just silliness for silliness's sake. We gotta assume that the coven is headed somewhere, right? They may bore me to tears, but I, they're headed somewhere. Uh, beautiful brother Brian acting weird... I gotta assume that's heading somewhere. Otherworld and Saturnine, that's probably heading somewhere pretty quick. And I'm feeling like, and this may just be me projecting, I don't know, but since we got our initial story arcs out of the way, you know, the first half dozen or so issues of all the Dawn of X books, I feel like we got those stories done, and now we're in this, like, treading water space here where... We're just going to let everything decompress to as long as it takes for us to get to X of Tens. You know, we have we know when X of Tens is going to start. We just need to get there. And rather than try to, like, cram a whole bunch of action in and a whole bunch of interesting little story bits, we're just going to slow down, we're going to decompress, and we're just going to, we're going to tread water till we get to the next big thing. Again, that's not an X-Men problem. That's not a Dawn of X problem. That's just current year comics. And uh, if you're if you're new to the hobby, this is probably not something you're noticing. Me being somewhat seasoned, it feels like it's a little bit of an anvil to the head here. It's just like, why aren't we getting where we need to go? But of course we do know there is a big event on the horizon here. Um, what else? What else? Uh, I know I already mentioned this. But the info pages, ugh, Excalibur has some of the worst and unnecessary info pages of the entire line. 
I mean, just give us two more story pages. You know, help us get through the story a little bit quicker. I don't need to see the priestess's diadem. I don't need to see the citadel. If you if you just told me what the citadel was, I don't need to see a whole page that tells me what it is again. You know, what, what book was it? We just read uh, New Mutants number nine, where they told us about this Carnelia city, this Carnelia country. And then we get a page telling us all about the Carnelia country. It's like, I don't care what their exports are. I don't care that what, what kind of money they use. I don't care what year they were established. I don't care what their population is. That has nothing to do with anything. It doesn't add the, the flavor that we're looking to add. So it's just give us more story or give us something interesting. Um, the uh, art here. Love the art here. I thought the art was fantastic. Everything popped really, really well. I love the uh, identity that Marcus Toe is giving this book. It's uh, really, really solid, solid stuff. Uh, the colors are fantastic. Um, really a very, very pretty book. Absolutely. Which, I mean, although Otherworld does bore me, Otherworld gives um, gives opportunity to explore so many wild uh, artistic, you know, uh, ideas. Such as, you know, the priestesses, the castles, the dragons... I can see an artist having a really good time with this. And clearly, uh, Marcus Toe is, is fantastic and does a, a wonderful job bringing the, these stories to life. But overall, I mean, I feel like I'm copping out on you here, but it this is, yeah, this was an issue of Excalibur that dealt with Otherworld. And uh, from the looks of it, we're nowhere near done. So uh, we'll just keep going as uh, best we can. And uh, hey... You know, stranger things have happened. Maybe I'll come around to it. I I hope I do. That'd be pretty cool, but uh, no guarantees. Now, before we cut out of here, we have some mailbagging to do. So let's get right to it here. We're going to start with Damien, who's discussing a biggie. He's talking about X-Men number seven. Now, he says, I have so much to say about this issue. Let's start with the Cyclops-Wolverine conversation. Now, for folks who haven't listened to that episode... This was a scene, a very short scene, that got a lot of play online here, where it was not so much hinted at, but uh, maybe it was hinted at. I, I, I don't know the proper way to put it, but uh, there was an illusion here that Cyclops and Wolverine had a had an attraction to one another. Um, I believe Scott asked him about uh, asked Wolverine about like seeing him in a speedo, and he's like, "Ah, oh, you know, I, I, w- I couldn't pass that up." I took it to be a joke. Uh, Damien, too, took it to be a joke here, but we'll, uh, we'll let him explain it. He says, As you know, I am a great big gay, but I uh, seem to have missed the online discourse on this conversation, and I follow a lot of gay X-Men fans on Twitter. It's clearly a joke. I don't think Hickman is seriously trying to say that Wolverine is attracted to Cyclops. Tone of voice is hard to convey in a comic book, but body language is relatively easy, and the staging of this scene sets them deliberately apart. There is definitely no flirtation on panel. I did see one article reference this in relation to the queer baiting versus queer representation discourse. Queer baiting is where where stories imply characters are gay to engage the LGBT plus audience, but to keep it deniable. They want us to be able to identify with the characters without having to scare off any homophobic readers. I don't know if we can accuse Hickman of queer baiting, as he also has a number of characters who are identified as LGBT plus in the X-Books, but as you said, he's happy for people to see what they want to see. And yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree 100%. This whole scene sort of turned into a, I'm not sure exactly what the setting is, a tempest in a teapot, tempest in a teacup, 
a tempest somewhere very small is what I'm trying to say here. Um, I think there was probably equal amounts of wish fulfillment and flame stoking at play here. Um, I don't know. I don't know that it was so much baiting of any reader, but more baiting of comics journalists because they are uh, very, very easy marks. And I mean, like both real comics journalists and wannabe comics journalists. Um, Hickman's a smart dude, clearly He's a smart dude He had to have known that the Bleeding Cool And Bleeding Cool alikes of the world Were going to run with this as hard as they could And squeeze every single click out of it that they could uh, You know, love clicks And perhaps more importantly to them, hate clicks You know, there's no such thing as bad publicity And uh, virtue signaling goes a long way For places like Bleeding Cool So, there's that Damien continues I, could, I would happily see Wolverine presented as bisexual. He's about 150 years old. Surely he'd have experimented at some point, if only through boredom. What I find unbelievable is that he would be attracted to Cyclops. His past romantic history shows him attracted to fiery women. Cyclops is far too controlled for Wolverine. I'm definitely anti this relationship. And yeah, you know, I'm not a big fan of this pairing either. In fact, I'm not sure I would like that. I, I don't like Wolverine and Cyclops even being friends, so much, you know, much less lovers. I do see them as respecting one another. I do see them as tolerating one another. I do see them talking to one another every now and again, and maybe maybe out of respect and a uh, like a professional admiration. But it's like I don't see them going out like bowling. And, and going out for wings or anything I don't, I just don't see that um, so yeah, You know, stranger things have happened uh, Damien continues Moving on, I loved the Douglock transition I think this is our first sighting of Warlock In the Hox Pox Docs era And it was great to see him back It seems odd that Doug is hiding him But hopefully that will lead to a future story It's a bit of a spoiler But there's a scene in X of Tens When Warlock being on Krakoa Is treated as something of an open secret Everyone knows he's there, but they're humoring Doug by ignoring him. Obviously, when I see Doug, Warlock, and Krakoa together, it brings to mind the theories we've all had about the man-machine-plant hybrids. And that's very interesting. I, I, I wonder why Doug would want that to be kept a secret. You know, Warlock is, as far as I know, he's a, he's a, you know, a part of the family, right? He's a member of the team whenever he wants to be, and he's alive. Um, you know, we did see... In New Mutants number nine, that Doug is attempting to interface with Krakoa. And I wonder if he has any designs on infecting the island with some techno-organics or something, you know? Um, maybe the phalanx future will come 999 years early. Who knows? I, I, I wonder, uh, you know, it's like if humoring Doug might come back and bite everybody. That could be interesting, because Doug is... You know, as, as, as so many people like to say, he's underused and underrated. <laughs> he's, he's like a linchpin character here. He is uh, the way that the island can communicate. So, I wonder. Uh, you know, they put all this trust in this one dude, and we just don't know what he might be up to. That's, that's very cool stuff. Damien continues. The opening of the Cyclops Nightcrawler conversation with the talk about the tower sat heavier with me on rereading. I skipped over it on my first reading, presuming it belonged to one of the more magical characters like A or Exodus. Re-looking at it, particularly being halfway through X of Tens, I see it as looking very otherworldly. Is it a structure from before the island separated? It looks like a tuning fork combined with a sword, but there are, are but there are or 
Oh boy, easy for me to say. But there are organic elements as well. Sometimes I think I overanalyze this stuff. You know, today we saw the Citadel, right? Uh, the Fork Tower on Krakoa does look very otherworldly. If we compare it to the Citadel, they have very similar qual- uh, characteristics. I do wonder, maybe, you know, we, we we're paying so much attention to Apocalypse trying to spread um, spread control over other world, right? He's trying to get these these gateways everywhere he can get them. I wonder if Otherworld is uh, returning the favor. You know, is Otherworld trying to stake their claim on Krakoa? Is that a way they can get through? I don't know. That could be interesting. And I don't know a whole lot about X of Swords yet, or X of Tens yet, but uh, I'm seeing a lot of weird characters that I've never seen before. And uh, I don't know, maybe they maybe there's something to do with this, uh, this weird tuning fork building. Uh, Damien continues. The theological discussion between Scott and Kurt is almost designed for me. I have a degree in theology, and I'm always up for a bit of debate. Of course, we often find ourselves comparing it to our real-world religion when the Marvel Universe is a very different place. There's empirical evidence of souls existing separately from bodies in the Marvel Universe. They know that there's an afterlife. Kurt lived in heaven, and that your soul can return. Within their world, the conversation about souls is different. We could spend hours debating whether there's such a thing as a soul. In fact, many people would determine that the part the soul is a part of the body made up of chemicals and electrical impulses. Still, though, they require a leap of faith. Is it the same is it the same them that's being resurrected? They have memories of their previous lives, but it's entirely possible that the Kurt who died on the Orcus Forge is sat in heaven, and that this is an all new, all different nightcrawler. And yes, a hundred percent. Hundred percent. It is such a weird thing whenever we try to uh, relate things like faith in the Marvel Universe to faith in the real world. As you said, um, there is a Marvel heaven. There is a Marvel hell because we've seen them. We've been there. Uh, some of our favorite characters have lived there. You know, Nightcrawler lived there. It's kind of uh, why it's hard for me to like really glom onto the fact that there are skeptics in the Marvel Universe. Like, I think we're supposed to view Beast as a skeptic, which... If we're looking at him through a real-world lens, yeah, it makes sense. Stands to reason. However, he's not from the real world. And, and I mean, he's friends with gods. <laughs> he's friends with people who have gone to heaven and come back. It's, it's weird. Now, the idea that the characters we're following right now uh, are not the characters that we know and love and that they're just husks, it's one I kind of get stuck on. Um, like, if these characters are dying, are the Reborn X-Men really the same people? Uh, it's something we've talked about a lot on this program, and it's... I still don't know where I fall on it, because I still don't know enough about exactly what we're supposed to be seeing yet. I don't know that it's been explained anywhere yet. Um, so it's... It's kind of like a waiting game we're playing here, and in a weird way, I mean, to go off on a little bit of an aside here, it kind of reminds me of, um... I can't remember which comedian it was. I think it was Jerry Seinfeld. He was talking about uh, sports fandom. And how, like, at the end of the day, if we take a step back and truly ponder our fandom, you know, if we're a fan of a team, all we're really doing is rooting for our favorite shirt. You know, the players change all the time. Management changes. Coaches changes. Sometimes team names and logos change. Everything changes. But we still root for the shirt. Yeah, you know, I'm a lifelong New York Mets fan, which, yeah, you know, it's it's a hard thing to be. 
I still consider myself one to this day, despite not having watched a game in years. I couldn't tell you a single player on the team, but I still consider myself a fan. Is that something like what we got here? Like, we're rooting for Nightcrawler because he looks like Nightcrawler. You know, he looks like Nightcrawler, he smells like Nightcrawler, he talks like Nightcrawler. Whether or not he actually is Nightcrawler is irrelevant, because we're just rooting for the look. You know, it's... I don't know, it's weird. It's... (laughs) It's, it's, it's really weird. I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing how, I'm looking forward and dreading, I should say, how this uh, actually will be played out. Uh, Damien continues, Kurt suggests creating a mutant religion, but really, Exodus is way ahead of him. The way he's indoctrinating the youngsters about the Scarlet Witch and the decimation is eerily reminiscent of a cult leader. It seems unlikely that setting up Wanda as an Antichrist figure is going to end well. The Crucible itself is presented like a sacrament. You compared it to an adult baptism, which is appropriate, but doesn't get across quite how gruesome this is. He slices Melody apart in full view of her friends and family. And that's an excellent point on Exodus. Um, And although I I really enjoyed his scene here, I really didn't put two and two together and uh, realized that he is absolutely and without question indoctrinating these young Krakoans. Though personally, I wouldn't mind seeing Wanda tossed into a volcano. For the whole new no more mutants thing, um, uh, this is you know definitely him grooming the next generation of uh, of mutants here to hate this uh, pretender. You know, I, I really should research to see if Scarlet, which is even a mutant anymore. I keep I keep meaning to do that. I know they changed them to miracles briefly. I don't know if it, they still are miracles, so I, I should check into that. But uh, yeah, I don't think I want to see the X Men versus the Avengers again because that never seems to work out well for the X Men. Uh, and for the Crucible, yeah, it is totally gruesome. And I shudder to think of a real-world ceremony that we compare it to, right? Other than, I guess, ritual sacrifice or something, I guess. Uh, it really it really is something. And it's uh, it's a scene and a, a thing that it's hard, to, it's hard to let go of. It really sticks with you. And it makes you view these characters a little bit differently. Uh, Damien continues. We're shown that Sam has to be held back to prevent him from intervening, but the people who live on Krakoa are not shown reacting to the death of Melody, only to her resurrection. Maybe they're trying to imply that most people agree with Wolverine, that it is Melody's choice so they shouldn't interfere, but I can't imagine being in that audience and not trying to stop it. I like to think most people would protest even if they accepted her free will, if only because it is a natural instinct to preserve life. Don't forget, this is a crowd of superheroes. They have trained themselves to protect life at all costs, and yet they're able to just stand by. I can only see this working if Krakoa is having an effect on their decision-making. It was stated that Krakoa feeds on mutant energy, but it doesn't have a negative effect as it's spread out over so many people, all of whom lose a little bit of energy. Maybe this energy loss makes them more docile, more credulous. Having said that, Professor X holds his hand up to his head just before the killing blow, which is usually a signifier that he's using his powers. Maybe he's live-editing the crowd. That's interesting. That is very interesting. And I want to go with this theory um, that Krakoa and Xavier are, as you put it, live-editing what's going down. Um, For all we know, from the spectator's point of view, Apocalypse's killing blow might have looked... Like him bathing Melody in light, or flowers, or something beautiful, right? Maybe they didn't see any pain, or even see the death. 
there's almost got to be some measure of widespread mind control at play here. Uh, otherwise, the Crucible might be our Rubicon here, right? Um, I can't think of any organic and unforced sort of way to walk this back. Unless, of course, we're not seeing what they're seeing. I can live with Xavier being a, a control freak and a mind wiper. And an abuser of power. That's nothing new. But everybody else? I mean, like Storm's there. Jean's there. Scott's there. Nightcrawler's there. Strong guy's there. I mean, there's so many people there. And it's... It seems like it's a drawn line right there. If... If they're actually seeing someone run through or hacked into pieces by a giant sword... Yeah, that's... Mm. And I know I've been, I've been going on about Crucible ever since we read it, but it's it's a pretty big deal. Definitely a big deal. Damien continues. This issue really is a big one. It opens up with it opens up so many questions, and by putting them in Kurt's mouth, it shows that they're deliberately being highlighted and implies that Hickman has answers. You finished your review by imploring anyone who is following X-Labs but not buying the books to go out and buy this one. I would concur, but it also highlights part of the reason I dropped X-Men a couple of issues later. I realized that there are key issues like 6 and 7, and a lot of other stories that you can safely skip. I knew that I would hear about these key issues through social media, so I could drop the book and just pick up the issues I hear are unmissable. Of course, this didn't last very long as I came back with X of 10s, which grabbed me enough so that I've bought all 16 issues so far. And I think I mentioned uh, a few episodes back that I would have loved if they continued the old Hoxpox reading order way of telling the reader which books were unmissable. Uh, like, what was it, uh, House of X2, House of X5, and Powers of X6? They were all highlighted in red on our, on our little checklist, right? And those are the ones that we call the shoe drop issues. The can't-miss... And you have to see these. These are the ones, if you don't read anything else, read these. And uh, I think it would have been cool if they kept that up. Um, I think, I'm pretty sure the next red-highlighted book in our reading lists is actually X of Swords Creation, so it's a way off. And I totally get why they wouldn't do this. (laughs) And I can appreciate them not wanting to make it seem as though... Some of the books are lesser in comparison to others, but I think it would have been helpful for those who aren't quite as obsessive as to keep up with, you know, all of them. (laughs) Uh, I think uh, it would be a really cool way to signify that these were the the biggies. Um, And, you know, maybe that's a qualifier we can start to use here on the show. We could talk about whether or not a given issue is a red issue, you know, Uh, like Excalibur number nine. I would suggest that this is not a red issue. This is not a red highlighted issue. This is one you could probably skip. Uh, Damien continues. Ultimately, it comes back to what you said during the feedback. No matter how often I give up on the X-Men, I'm always primed to jump back on. And yeah, that's in our that's in our DNA at this point, my friend. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, I walked away from the X-Books and, and comics in general for the first time back in 1995. And I did so cold turkey and... I, I was just done. Done, done, done. And I've told this story before probably way too many times. I just couldn't deal with willy-nilly price hikes and gimmick covers. And despite the fact that I still had a whole lot of affection for the characters, 
I just couldn't justify the frustration of trying to keep up with everything. I'm an all-or-nothing guy, so I need everything or nothing. And at a time where gimmick covers and gimmick pricing were just happening constantly, I had to stop. And, and when I left the shop that day, the, uh, the owner, he's like, he told me, uh, he's like, oh, you'll be back. And I was like, no way, man, I'm done. He's like, no, 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 you always come back. And, uh, you know, a quarter century later, and uh, a dude couldn't have been more right if his life depended on it. So I think it's uh, definitely, it's, it's in our DNA at this point. But uh, thank you so much for, for your very thoughtful message on a huge, huge issue of, uh, of X-Men there. Thank you. Uh, next, we got something from our friend Ed, who uh, is giving us some news on some fallout regarding X-Men plus Fantastic Four. Now, he sent me a link from CBR regarding our friend Franklin. Uh, Franklin Richards, of course, and a recent revelation that dropped in Fantastic Four number 26 by Dan Slott and R.B. Silva. Spoilers, by the way. I'll give a few seconds before, uh, in case you want to skip ahead about a minute, minute and a half. Uh, we learned in Fantastic Four number 26 that not only is Franklin Richards not an Omega-level mutant, but he was never even a mutant in the first place. Now, in the issue, Professor X says the following. You are not a mutant, and according to Cerebro, you have never been one. As a child, you dreamed of being different, special. Without intending to, you used your cosmic powers to alter every cell in your own body till it appeared as if you, ha- if you possessed the X gene. He then tells the boy that he's no longer welcome on Krakoa. Which, pretty interesting, though, not going to lie, more than a little bit disappointing. Um, and also, Charles's use of the word till instead of until kind of weirded me out. He said, you know, to alter every cell in your own body till it appeared. A little casual for old Chuck there. But, uh, but thank you for sending that, Ed. That's a very interesting thing. And, uh, you know, it is a way of solving a problem, I guess. I guess maybe... Maybe the folks at Marvel thought the Franklin as a mutant thing was a problem that needed solving. And so they did. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about it. I guess it's a, yeah, you, can, you, can you really miss what you never had, right? I guess it's one of those sort of things. But, uh, but definitely very interesting information. Thank you for sharing it uh, with me uh, today. Next, we have, uh, we have something from our friend Mark, Green Lantern HG, regarding X-Men number 8. He says, another great episode, Chris. The Brood is one of my favorite ex-villains, but not when they're mixed with the Shi'ar. I would have loved a little more exploration on the Brood, but by now, I think it would be a lot like Aliens, so I don't think it would work. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. And uh, I think I read somewhere that Marvel actually now has the rights to the Aliens franchise. Uh, So, yeah, using the Brood might be a little dicey moving forward. You know, I, I th- I'm pretty sure uh, the covers that I've seen have been Wolverine and uh, and like the the Geiger aliens. You know, so I wonder maybe the Brood will take a back seat for a little bit. Maybe they'll have to. Don't know. Maybe the Brood will. Maybe the Brood will breed with the aliens, and we'll we'll get something altogether different. But uh, I I also enjoy the Brood um, in in small doses, uh, though when it's all tangled up with the Shi'ar, ugh. I think I could do, I could do with a Shi'ar story every now and again, but to this point, 
it's been like nothing but it's way too much shiar stuff but uh thank you thank you so much mark uh next we have something from our friend evan who just finished reading x-force book one and he did so uh via hoopla and that's a uh digital library service where if you're you know, local physical library has an uh, has a an arrangement with Hoopla. You can you can read a whole bunch of stuff for free. And uh, I believe X Force was the one holdout from the first you know the first run of the Dawn of X books. So now I think you can read everything at least for the first arcs of Dawn of X. And I'm pretty sure Hoxbox is there too, if you do have a Hoopla account and if your local library is uh, is part of that program. So if there's anything you wanted to catch up on, dang. It's there for you. Now he says, Finish the X-Force trade, the first six issues. It's dark, of course, but much more understandable than Fallen Angels, where they didn't really wrestle with the violence, just agreed to try not to kill mind-controlled kids. Now maybe an oversimplification, but that's how I remember it. I wouldn't say that's an oversimplification. That was basically Fallen Angels. (laughs) I was glad at least somebody remembered the Kill No Man law, even if they didn't view it as much more than a suggestion. I've enjoyed Quentin Quire since the Wolverine and the X-Men days, and I think he was written well and in character. I like Wolverine as the voice of reason in issue two. I believe countering Magneto's mutants are the new gods philosophy. While Logan never hesitates to dish out brutality, I like it when writers show that he doesn't do so with glee and realizes that there's a cost. I could have done without a lot of the graphic violence, though it made sense in Domino's case with what had been done to her. Yes, definitely. Um, It is dark. It is very dark. Um, I, I I remember, boy, when was it? Probably, ah, probably twenty ten ish, where they put out a run of X Force where the artist on it was Clayton Crane, which was brutally dark. It looked like you know death metal album covers. It was just scary dark. And uh, this isn't quite as dark as that, but it's definitely darker than everything else. Going in uh, in the Dawn of X uh, world here, it is darker subject matter, um, which is something we've talked about before. Like, like is this what people think of when they think of X Force? It's like if it's X Force, it has to be dark. I don't know that I completely agree with that. I don't know that I completely disagree with it either. But it's definitely the tone they're going with here. Now, Domino being skinned. I mean, that's uh, that's pretty brutal. But uh. Yeah, I guess you gotta gotta depict it that way, huh? Uh, uh, Evan continues. I miss the fun-loving beast, but I thought the series so far did a good job of presenting the quandaries a government can find itself in when protecting the nation, even if I don't agree with some of their decisions. I mean, these are sci-fi superhero comics. There's always an alternative to killing, but that wasn't the story they were trying to tell. I, too, miss the fun-loving beast. (laughs) Definitely. It's something we've talked about a lot. Um... And yeah, you know, one thing that I don't know that I've mentioned is uh, is you're, you're right here. Um, this is, uh, I remember I was working uh, for, I was a quality assurance and logistics manager for a, uh, for a trucking company. And we were building onto, we had this like little, like aluminum building that was, that's been in, it's been there for decades you know just sitting there and we wanted to break it up into offices and so we built 
we put up walls, basically, and I have absolutely no construction experience. <laughs> None. Um, I, I still have a toolbox I built when I was a Cub Scout, but uh, uh, I wouldn't want to put tools in it because it probably wouldn't hold it. But uh, I remember we put up those walls, and um, one of the managers came in and uh, from, from the corporate office, and he was he's like, there was a lot of learning in that wall because, it, you know, it was a wall. It was functionally a wall. It's as in it separated one room from another. And it was mostly, you know, it was straight and it served its purpose. We could fit a door on there and it was a wall. But it wasn't perfect because it was people who have never built walls before building a wall. When we look at Krakoa, these are people who have never built nations before building a nation. They have, you know, their own Senate. They have their own CIA and X-Force. They've never had this before. So I can definitely appreciate the fact that they're going to be making some decisions that aren't going to always land and they're not always going to be the best decisions. So I do agree. Um, and that's something I never really considered before your message, that these uh, these goof-ups, or maybe not so much goof-ups, but these just... Uh, more controversial decisions, um, less safe decisions, they could be intentional, you know, to show us that this is, that there's a lot of learning in that island, right? I mean, it stands to reason. But uh, thank you so much for uh, for sharing your thoughts, Evan. And we talked a little bit, uh, Evan and I, earlier today, and he was, he was uh, questioning if it was cool to send in discussions of older issues. And I was like, yes, please do. Please do. And that goes to everybody. You know, if uh, if you just discovered this show or if you're just popping in on random episodes and there's something you read that you want to discuss, feel feel free and welcome to share your thoughts with me. And, uh, and we'll discuss them here. And uh, that's... Part of the, probably the funnest part of this uh, of this little gig that uh, that we're doing here it's uh, is sharing our thoughts and uh, bouncing ideas off one another and having our having our own little you know book club in our corner of the of the internet here. So any thoughts on any books, please feel free uh, to uh, to send them my way. But uh, we're gonna wrap up with uh, something from our friend Jeremiah. Now he just read X Force number one and Fallen Angels number one. And he says, X-Force, two thumbs up on the story. The art was good, not great. Fallen Angels, ouch. I didn't enjoy that one very much. It was not helped by the fact that I do not know what the story is with Psylocke and Betsy Braddock being two different people. Gotta got put your podcast on this afternoon to get the full rundown. And thank you, Jeremiah. I'm, I'm so happy you're still following along here. And uh, I'm happy you made it through all the number ones here, including Fallen Angels. Because, uh... Yeah, yeah, I think, uh, I think ouch is a good way to put it. <laughs> it's, I, you know, uh, just uh, in last episode, we got an email from our friend Andrew about some of the things he doesn't like about this run, right? What we've yet to get here on this show is an email from anyone talking about how much they like Fallen Angels. So if you're out there, if you're out there, please let me know what it is you like about it. Maybe I'll come around. You never know. Maybe we'll just have a fun discussion. But, uh, yeah, Fallen Angels is... I mean, we've said it before. It's like, how did this get published? How did it go six issues? How did we talk about six issues? We spent... We probably spent three hours talking about Fallen Angels. 
I'm not sure it took three hours to write Fallen Angels, and we spent that time talking about it. Ugh. Uh, X-Force, though. That first issue of X-Force is really something. It's uh, very, very strong, and it makes a statement in that... Uh, I mean, the assassination is seen at the end. I, could, I, I wouldn't have bet that we'd see anything like that. So, uh, definitely an eye-opener. Definitely a thinker. Definitely one that makes your mind just race with the possibilities and the problems that my, uh, the X-Men might be facing with a, you know, a dead leader who we don't know if he can come back. At least then we didn't know. But uh, no, it's very, very fun, and I, I almost envy you <laughs> the not knowing how it all turns out because, uh, yeah, it, it kind of just turns out. But thank you so much, Jeremiah. It's always nice hearing from you, and thank you everybody for uh, for writing in and uh, and taking the time out of your days to uh, to engage with this little program. Now, of course, if anybody would like to reach out, it's easy to do so. You can reach me at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at Gmail dot com. You can find show notes and blog posts over at ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarth.com. There's also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. You can talk to us about all sorts of X-Men stuff over on Facebook at 90s X-Men, and the entire audio archives of the Chris and Reggie channel is ready for your waiting ears at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You can find it on any place you you usually find noise. So uh, I guess if you're listening to the show, you're you already know that. But uh, that is where we'll put a pin in it for today. Uh, next, we'll be talking about X-Force number nine. And uh, looking forward to that. I think um, you know it's been a couple of very strong issues of X-Force. I hope this keeps up the trend. But that's it for today. One more giant thank you to everyone for sharing your time. And as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. <laughs>